0: Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, This is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So, who are you?
1: I am Laura Davis. I am a comedian, Uh, I'm a writer. Those are the things I do. Most of the time, I'm out alone in the woods, though, which I think is the thing people (laughs) need for context.
0: (laughs) So, um, when you say, for people who don't understand what you've just said, a lot of the time you are out alone in the woods. Uh, Explain what you just mean. I mean, I think I made it very clear (laughs) (laughs) to me. Uh, I don't. I mean, all those words are
1: in. You know, (laughs) I think. When you have to, you know, introduce yourself and say what you do for a living and nothing else, it, you know, it, it does paint a, a one sided picture. So I, I think, yeah, the other things you enjoy doing. And I enjoy going out into the woods for about three hours a day or maybe along the coast for three hours a day. Let's see, um, which direction. And yeah, I think that. That explains. I I would like to be able to tell people that when I meet them. Hi, I'm Laura. I spend three hours a day in nature to maintain my sanity, and I do other things as well, <laughs> but that's yeah. the main
0: one. Well, that's. I think it's a really interesting way of looking at it too, because that's you know you say three hours of my day, most days, every day, whatever it is that you're doing this. That might be a lot more than you are ever like working in that period of time and yet we immediately leap to <laughs> define ourselves by our work more than this other thing that is actually mm. much more of your day regularly of maybe who you are or, or what yeah. you are or how you view the world.
1: I think particularly before COVID, if you had asked that question and go, Oh, I'm I'm Laura Davis, I'm a comedian and then what happened to me was I was on tour with. Um, well, my my partner was on tour as well, uh, in in New Zealand. I went to South Africa, left my flat in London, and then borders were closing. I made it to New Zealand, and then New Zealand did not let me out for fourteen months, and I had no gigs, no work, no friends, <laughs> um, and we were staying really close to this sort of big swathe of forest which is you know most of the country and you know a big swathe of the coast and so i just had to sort of move into focusing on the riding element as an outlet um but definitely losing that part of the identity of oh i'm laura this is what i do for a living oh no i'm 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 laura i i walk around <laughs> looking at birds for 3 hours <laughs> a day and that is the thing i do um regularly and i don't think i've been able to let that go now as as a shared part of you know uh any sort of identity
0: it's so but that is interesting to me that it wasn't something that immediately that was situational like you know the idea that that becomes – you don't leave that behind like a personality you developed on an overseas holiday that, you know, re- it really isn't you but you wanted to try on for a while. Like you've taken it with you as part of, you know, your identity.
1: Yes. It's um it's the kind of meditation retreat that people would pay a lot of money for, I think. um You know, it will be three and a half years. You will spend three hours a day – meditating by the sea or near some trees and, uh, sorry, it just, it, it gets in. You can't, um, you, you can't distance yourself once you've sort of letting yourself behave in a way that you would, you know, something that I had not done for a long time because I couldn't do it. But the moment I had the chance it just fell into a really natural rhythm for me and it felt a lot like something I'd been trying to do ever since I'd sort of, I guess, stopped being a kid and stopped being allowed to just go out and sit outside. You know, uh, we grew up in the bush and uh, the Jarrah forest belt in um, Perth. And so, you know, that was a very normal thing for me was to just go sit outside or play outside for about three hours And then, you know, that's not a normal thing to do. And then suddenly it was again and I haven't been able to let it go.
0: How much of that have you thought about in a sense of how society makes us do that in general? I mean, you, as you said, had an outdoors, you know, childhood. So it was – but like, you know, a lot of kids have outdoors childhood. I grew up on a farm, you know, and then – without ever really thinking about it it did all sort of go away and
1: <laughs> yeah you go inside once yeah. without realizing it forever
0: yeah it's <laughs> what is have you thought more about that on any other level than the practical observation or do you have a theory around is there anything more to it like why is it why is it such a sharp transition why do we you know immediately move everybody inside and and You know, like, I mean, in an intellectual sense as much as a physical sense.
1: Well, I'm very glad you asked, Well, uh, I do have a theory. I have been thinking about it by the coast for some time now. Um, I think it's spiders. (laughs) And uh, I've checked. (laughs) Yeah, no, I went in deep. And this was... I I mentioned this in my show this year. People looked at me like a raven conspiracy theorist, and I understand why, because they have not spent three and a half years sitting by the coast, and I, I have to forgive them for that. But I looked at the evolutionary timeline, and spiders evolved in the ocean round about the same time that most other things fucked off out of the ocean. So I think a spider touched whatever the beginning origins of a leg was, in the ocean and we have been running ever since (laughs) and (laughs) we we can't shake that that small evolutionary reflex to go inside to keep safe to you know to order the universe to suit ourselves and yet you know in the same way people talk about australia and there's a a real imperial colonial element to, Oh my God, the the animals, the spiders, the snakes, that place was, that was just home for so many people for so many centuries. It was just home. And now it's a scary place full of scary things and it, it doesn't belong to us. And, you know, I, there's a whole bunch of people to whom that statement is true, but, once you, once you allow yourself to occupy a greater territory in a very animal sense, I consider myself to be in my house when I am two kilometers, three kilometers, four kilometers, five kilometers away from where my bed might be. Um, you know, it was very normal for me to be out alone in nature in New Zealand, which is an experience I'm very grateful for because, you know, in this size and shape body, it's not something I would often have the opportunity to do safely, but New Zealand has a very low crime rate. And so going out into nature at night alone, in the day alone, into wilderness places alone is a very New Zealand activity for me because it is safe it's maybe not something i would get to do everywhere and once that i find it so interesting the gap between how much of a weirdo i am and how normal i feel when i'm doing the things that apparently make me a real weirdo
0: interesting so yeah so you you're saying that the external observation of weirdness is actually the opposite of what you're feeling in that moment, which is a sense of yeah. normal, of like normality or normalcy or connection or whatever it is.
1: People just project how they would feel if they were out
0: hmm.
1: alone in the dark in nature, and, and to them it would be weird. So that means you must have the same feelings and the same thoughts that they would, that would but it would just feel normal if that was what
0: you did every day. Well, this is, I mean, interesting to me. So how much of we think, how much we define about what is normal or not normal is just based on how often we do it. Because, like, I think it has parallels with the job that we've chosen because for people, their external observation of stand-up comedy, when you meet somebody who's just like, I can't believe that. That would be the hardest job in the world. Like, you know, and they have all those questions that they have about like – because to them that is like sleeping alone in the, you know, forest Mm. in the dark. That is – it just seems so incredibly foreign to them. But, of course, we know the reality is if you do it all the time, it becomes Mm. quite normal to you. It doesn't mean it's not difficult.
1: Unless you take – over a week and a half off for any particular reason. And then it becomes immediately <laughs> very strange again for some reason. <laughs> when you come back after a bit of a break, the first time back on stage, you go, Man, no, it's weird that this many people are looking at me. <laughs> Why are you? Ah, oh, no, it's a weird thing to do. And the, the muscle memory, the habit kicks in, and you're still going through your routine on stage. You know, you, even the little things about oh, make sure you stay present in the moment, make sure you do a really good job going on. But as you were doing that, at least part of you, the part that was not doing gigs for six weeks, goes, huh, weird.
0: Well, that's interesting to me because I must say that even though I intellectually understand and I hear people say, like, you know, I've heard people make a similar observation, you know, through their own prism, you know, about what time off stage and how it affects them. But I've got to say that... I and maybe it's just a, a being older, you know, having done like it longer, and you know, your perspective on things changes. But sometimes I feel like if I do have a little break, like you know, and I'm not talking like I don't want a COVID break ever again, but like, but you know, <laughs> like if I have six weeks off, or you know, even two two months mm. or whatever off, that I it 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 gives me an opportunity. I think when I'm doing a lot of shows. I'm more likely to do the next show in the rhythm or the whatever of the previous show because – and that's sometimes a good thing because it gets you, yes, slick and you know where your beats are and your jokes are. But also some – Consistent, easy to brand. Right. But sometimes in the three months I've been doing that show and doing it the same way, I, my perspective has changed somewhat or my way mm-hmm. I want to approach something has changed somewhat. So if I – immediately go into the next thing it'll have some of the rhythm and the dynamic of the previous thing because of that whereas if i've had a break and i have to mm. go back and i go how do i want to talk about this mm. like from the ground up a bit that it i don't know which is
1: why i think so much interesting stuff comes out of the country and like stand up was, um i came through in 2008 in perth which was right before you could like just right at the cusp of social media becoming a big thing. And so it was a whole bunch of kids with no idea what stand-up was really meant to look like with suddenly the resources to do it. And you've got this sort of cohort of really unique voices in the same way so many unique voices come out of Queensland, come out of regional areas, because these are people who who have taken that space that you were just describing by accident and they're coming in completely fresh if somebody says do stand-up comedy and you've never seen it or you've only seen you know the end of Seinfeld episodes where he's on stage or you've only seen people doing three minutes on the gala you have an idea of what it is but you really just Guessing from there, and I think that's where you get some really exciting voices. So, do you find if you do, um, you, you know, you run the show in for the month of Comedy Festival, so you do it that many times, how long will you sit with it after before it starts to feel a bit constricting? It never,
0: I mean, it never feels constricting. I won't say that. Like, I, because I, I always like mm. to find something new in everyone but also I think I had a gear change post-pandemic and sorry if this is like uh, not interesting to you but like because this podcast is about you Mm. not about me although it often becomes about (laughs) me let's not pretend but (laughs) my name is mentioned twice in the title come on but (laughs) I had a real thought about when the when my show existed because I had a show to do in Melbourne when Melbourne was cancelled and that would have been 25 years of doing new shows for me in a row Mm. in Melbourne. And like, so it had just been part of my life for so long that I'd never even considered like, you don't have like, this is what I talk about that Mary, you don't actually have time to stand back and consider Mm. and have a little think about it and reassess where your perspective is at. And what I realized was I had this show that existed, but for me written down, I was like, it isn't actually a show like and so mm. i really started to think about that idea of the show just being the instrument that i use like what i like to do is have a connection with an audience like i i like to go out on stage and try to get in get into a room full of people who don't know each other in rhythm with each other and in rhythm with me like that's actually what i like the most and the show is just the kind of structure through which I get to do that. Like if I've made Mm. the show work properly, it's an instrument I can use to create that connection between people and me. And so now I concentrate every night on I'm not talking about the show anymore. I'm talking about the connection. And so if that's what I'm trying to do, then it never gets stale because all the show is is the thing that I use to try and get the connection. Yeah,
1: we're staying in the Mm. room it's um and you know they always say that as you age that if you if you're lucky you get to be the person that you were when you were younger mm-hmm. you know the more freedom you are afforded as you age you know if you get more financially stable and things um you know psychologically stable you do find yourself going back and when i think about why i started performing it came out of just an intense and and very frustrated if not painful, loneliness. And I say if not painful as in I'm not sure if it was painful. It may have been. But I I did not thrive at university. I did not thrive at school. I was always sort of just, just that offbeat with everybody else. I found it – I didn't drink. I found it very hard to participate. And so I spent so much time, you know, at university just – walking around by myself, or I was at uh, University of Western Australia, so I would cross and I would go for a long walk along the river or something just to get off campus and get away from what I was finding overwhelming. And that was the time when I really decided I wanted to do it. And I had what is, you know, such a pretentiously profound experience, but I went down south in Western Australia to do a, couple of months of waitressing work because during the summer they need temporary staff and I was on break from university and that was when um, McNaught, Comet McNaught was happening and I left sort of the place I was staying and I walked probably an hour and a half down to Smith's Beach and Canal Rocks and yelling up. and, you know, all during the day I, I was going for these long walks on the coast, walking back. Having some food, then going out at night because I really wanted to see this this comet. And I was working most nights at the restaurant, so I had one night off. I was, I was definitely going to do it. Went down for this long walk on the beach, and like climbed up to some of these sort of rocky cliffs and sat there with you know that very teenage existential question of you know why should I not jump off these rocks? Not even in a I want to way, just you know why not? I said, well, if you, if you could do anything with your life, what would you choose to do? And I went, well, I think I'd like to do stand up and sort of climb back down, turn around got hit in the face with this massive comet across the sky. And I went in, you know, 20,000 years, 40,000 years, something like this, this comet will be back, but it's not going to be back for 40,000 years. And in 40,000 years, when this comet is above this beach, I'm going to have been dead for 40,000 years and nothing, not not even the nothing will matter, but this will have been such a short time. My life will have been short. What do I want to do with it? And, um, yeah, the answer was I I want to talk to people, you know, and stand up was the way that that seemed possible.
0: Uh, So how did that seem possible? Like what? Did you had you watched stand up? Had you seen it performed live? Had you seen it just on television? Like you know, why why did that seem like the place that talking to people was possible?
1: I owe so much to Fiona O'Loughlin. Owe so much, Fiona O'Loughlin, because she did the gala, probably We, I'm guessing it would have been the 2006 gala or the 2007, something like that, and they were doing these tiny little bits of backstage footage where they asked, you know, what made you get into comedy, and she described sitting in Alice Springs watching the gala on television and just crying and crying and crying while she watched the gala because she wanted to do it so badly, and that was what prompted her to, to start um, performing. And it was just enough for my very regional you know five television stations uh worldview to expand and go oh well there must be a path if if you can go from Alice Springs to that stage then oh no of course there must be small logical steps that I can take to move in that direction because up until then it it had felt like something other people got to do um And then suddenly it felt like, oh, no, I guess if I just looked up where it is in my city and I tried to learn how to do it and tried to, to, you know, I I booked through in the um, raw comedy competition. And I was a few months too late to sort of register. So then I waited a year with the intention that in a year I would do my first gig so there was quite a lot of i haven't stuck to any of the other decisions i made when i was <laughs> 17 18 <laughs> but it it seems you know psychopathic with the distance on it but i'm really you know i'm really proud of that like 18 year old for going no no this this direction and since then that's just been you know uh, committing to that and respecting that that's what I do and when I was in the woods and this you know mind you we'd lost you know pretty much all of our physical possessions and we lost them twice because when I went to Western Australia in 2021 they closed the border on me again as well so I was waiting to quit in the woods and I was there for a lot longer than three hours a day at the start because when New Zealand closed its borders, we didn't have anywhere to live. We sort of squeezed in with my mother in law and she is lovely. And I have to keep stressing how lovely she is because it sounds like I hate her, but I just find being cooped up in the house very, um, intense. And I find, um, you know, the, the masking around other people I, I find makes me tired. And so it was very natural for me to go, well, New Zealand has no rule against how long you can spend out of your house as long as you're exercising. So I am going to go for a 12 hour walk every day and, you know, sit in the forest. And I was waiting to quit and I didn't. And I was sitting in, you know, a plastic bin bag in the rain in the woods for days, waiting to quit. And I didn't, and and so now as we get back into work, as we, you know, as I start to rebuild, um, I do have that foundational thing of, well, apparently I'm not mm. quitting. So even when it's not working or it's hard, I I know I'm not going to not do this because I seem to be very single-minded on it and it feels like you've condemned yourself to a horrible fate and it's also very reassuring that, oh no, this just seems to be the thing that I love the most.
0: I think I'm just tired sometimes and, you know, there's that part of you that, you know, in your brain just is like, maybe it'll just be easier to quit. Like, you know, comedy is a hard thing to do and I have a, mm. I have a sad theory that, you know, it becomes harder the more you do it. Like, you get better at it, but I actually think it gets harder to do the more you do it, at least to mm. do it, you know, because I think that, you know, even if other people haven't seen your tricks, you've seen your tricks. And I think that, like, you, mm. if you want to be inventive and you want to move forward, like, it does... Like, and I think about it all the time. And there is just a part of me that goes, Well, you could just quit and then you would never have to mm-hmm. think about it again. But I do think that there is part of me that I, part of the reason I chose it was I knew it was hard and I wanted to spend my life yeah. fiddling. I know that I'm never going to get this. Yeah. Stand up is my car in my garage that on the weekends I exactly. work on. And, it doesn't actually really mm-hmm. matter if the car ever gets working. It's just I, exactly. this is what I wanted to do,
1: and that is such a nice place to get to. Is and I, you know, I've just finished the Edinburgh Fringe, and so I've been talking to a lot of newer comics, and you know, when, when they're all in various stages of uh, existential and creative distress, that's sort of what I say: is if you don't enjoy the process you're doomed in this. So, and that's not to say, oh, you're not enjoying what you're doing now. Well, you're fucked forever. But you need to know that you enjoy it. You know, I enjoy the editing work. I, uh, you know, it feels very much like my dad's shed. You know, I'm very much like my father and my grandfather were. And it's a, a big shed full of lots of little pieces and bits. And, you know, every a little bit of rubbish or something that might have a purpose is saved and squirreled away somewhere, and and I collect ideas and words, and, you know, I have books that are full of just, like, just a nice turn of phrase, and I don't know what I'll need them for, but I know I recognize them as being part of it, and they all get, you know, filed away, and then I sit and I tinker in the same way that I've seen, you know, the men in my family do – Uh, with their sheds and their inventions (laughs) and things. And I find when I approach the work, I I call it like the the Adam's rib of it, of I try and take the part of the hour I just completed that I know I enjoyed the most and enjoyed and made me the happiest when, you know, when it was coming up in the hour. I go, oh, good, this bit. Or, oh, I love how that bit behaved. (laughs) uh tonight and it's it's not necessarily the funniest joke or the 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 bit that feels the most connected to the audience or something it's it might be a big bit might be a, just a tiny little moment in the show that I consistently enjoyed the most and I try and take that and see what does it look like if I make an hour out of mm. that kind of material what is what does that extended to an hour next year look like and it always feels like selecting a shell or something for myself to grow into. I always try and leave myself a bit of room. So I'm always trying to make something that is, oh, I would say, 15 to 20% too difficult for me to pull off because I want to get up for the first 10 nights and go, oh, holy shit, I can't believe I got away with that. And then on night 20, night 24, oh, okay, I'm, I'm fitting into it, you know, it's comfortable. It feels like you build this machine is the show and then you have to get into it and you have to learn how to sort of move it and puppeteer it and how does it behave in different circumstances. And then hopefully, ideally, by the end of that year of performing that show again and again and again, like this one I've just completed in um, Edinburgh, I've probably performed it 50, 60 times now, and I'm, I'm starting to hit the sides of it. It feels snug, and I'm starting to see those tiny little problems that are in there that I could fix if I took the whole – but I couldn't – they're so deep in there I couldn't fix them unless I took the whole thing apart. So how do we make something else next year that doesn't mm-hmm. have those tiny little, <laughs> you know, hairline fractions to it? And it feels yes. like that constant challenge is the thing that I enjoy. Uh. Everything else when I was studying felt simple, mm-hmm. And, and it, not to be reductive, but I just, it, it's sort of this interesting thing of pulling something out of nothing, making something out of tiny pieces that, that is one whole piece. It's one whole show, but I only get it in fragments. I have to consider that I'm waiting for all the bits to, to collect, but it was always going to be one thing, making it, 15 to 20% too difficult for myself and then seeing if I can grow into that space because then that lets me you know um choose where I want to go after that and it's something I've been doing since I was 19 now I'm 35 and so every single year that question of who do you want to be next year what do you want to say what do you care about how do you want to feel you know feels like it's part of the registration of the the festivals and the shows and choosing what work you want to make.
0: Yeah, but, uh, but, like, thank you. I mean, firstly, I'm so glad that you said it and said it so eloquently because, you know, you could have been pulling these thoughts out of my own brain and it's rare that I get to have a conversation with someone who, like, thinks about that as the o- overwhelming Question that needs to be answered. I mean, that question. I say question. Those five questions, like what you know. But the very essence of, okay, well, I'm about. I'm going to do this again. Like, why and how and what you know. What what are, what, what am mm. I passionate about? What do I think? Like, what do I want mm. to say? And how do I want to say those things? Like that's yeah. to me the hardest of all questions to answer, though. Like, I mean, it's the most important, but the hardest.
1: I go what what is what is hurting me at the moment, what is prickling me mm. in the world and what can I see other people struggling with that I feel I have uh a way to, to help? And there's something beautiful about you know comedy is such a frustrating medium Bless it, because if you're doing it well, it should look like you're doing nothing. Great, perfect. Uh, If you're the best in the world at it, nobody will know. And also, it is effective because it is silly. It is, you know, you can get really in between the ribs of ideas. You can expose things because you are playing with the revealing of truth and the acknowledgement of truth because that moment of laughter that you can get from people isn't necessarily about entertaining them. It's going, hey, you know this idea and this idea. What about this? And they go, oh yeah, no, you're right. So if you can get that response for things that people didn't know they knew were true, if you can get down into that, that feels surgical, almost. You're going through sort of different layers of people's resistance to ideas. And so, you know, last year I did an hour show which was mostly about hey you know we don't value the arts and we don't value education and we don't value political engagement anymore and and that's one of the main problems we're facing as a society these things are being stripped away and that came out of you know the lack of arts funding and support during the pandemic The, the the phrase of oh well the arts is a luxury we can't afford at the moment and oh we're going to cut education costs because we need to put more money into military. And that has huge political and social ramifications. But I feel like if I can get to that tiny little building bro- block of the idea, you know, the, the angle that we've gone off in the wrong direction on, if I can go right back down to that, then we stand a chance of sort of changing the way people think about it. This year it was very much I've, I've lost a couple of dear friends in the last um, year or so and so this show is very much about that positive experience of grief of knowing that the people who you love and the people you um who love you change you and even after they go you get to keep those changes you get to keep those changes you get to build them out in yourself as a monument to who they were and sort of I feel like the people that I've lost are so present (laughs) in my life and I find that it gives me such great comfort and I know so many people have lost so many people over the last few years it felt important to try and take that idea that was giving me so much comfort in my loss and make it um make it into something that people would come and see because you are tricking people into coming and engaging with those ideas as well you know it's not on the poster we don't put we don't put it in the pull quotes. We don't say, "Hey, come and see this show." It's about um, the you know stalking spectrum of fascism that we all <laughs> labour under. We just say, "Hey, it's really funny. Come come sit down." You really, well, sort of, you know, I mean, isn't the um, agreement in general?
0: People? Yeah, I understand what you're saying about tricky people, and it is also when people who end up at the wrong show feel quite aggrieved that they've been tricked into Mm. coming to the show but the overall implicit agreement is that if it is funny then you are allowed to talk about like Mm. I remember in the early days people would ask me what my show was about and I was very hesitant to ever answer that question because I said I don't want people to I don't want people to be coming based on whether what it's about because like, it'll be about something different next year. Like, I want them to be coming and because they want they to hear me. they have a
1: subjective idea. Yeah,
0: I just want them to come and, like, enjoy me talking about whatever it is I yeah. talk about. The show is from when I start talking to when I stop talking. That's the show.
1: Yeah. And people come up after this and they go, I love that show you wrote about this. Mm. And I go, huh, okay, to you, that's what it was about. Yeah, And it's interesting in the shows that are are about, you know, to be fair, Maybe the shows are about four or five things, and to me, the prominent one should be X. And somebody else has gone, "Oh no, it's it's Q." To me, it's Q. That's a show about Q. And you go, "You know what? That's not not true to you." So yeah, you're right. It's um, it's a very interesting process. To um, I always feel like it's like I'm watching a show from the very back of a room. And I can sort of make out the vibe, but I can't hear what I'm saying. And then as I put it together, I get closer and closer to the front of the room and I can sort of see what it is. And usually there's that little moment where you go, oh, oh, of course, I'm talking about this. And then okay. you brush off. So, and, you know, so there is that moment. Like
0: you do feel like that, that that is a revelation you have within the process. Like there is a moment where you go, oh, okay, now I get it.
1: If I'm lucky, yes. Because <laughs> uh, for this show, it was, why do I have all of these jokes on spiders? Why do I have all of these? You know, am I just, have I just accidentally written it? Yeah. My fear for this one was, have I accidentally just written a lot of club material? And, and that, that desire to connect with people that prompted me to start in the first place, I have not done any gigs really for the last few years. So we're, we're talking like maybe three or four stand-up gigs a year because I've been in New Zealand, I have um, been in Wellington, and when I went back to Perth, I found it very hard to book work in the scene there, um, unfortunately, and it was this sort of long game of going, well, the, the person I was sort of walking around on the beach <laughs> going, oh, I wish I could do comedy, feels very much like the person I am at 35 walking along the beach for three hours going, oh, huh, I wish I could do comedy. Mm. And it takes you back to that original place and that desire to go, oh, I really just want to connect <laughs> with people. But the advantage I have now is I have 15 years' worth of experience on stage, so I have a better idea of what that might look like. Whereas you know, at nineteen, I was just going, "Whoa, I have no idea what I, what would I even say."
0: I mean, what did you? Can you even remember what you said? Like when you first started, do you know what you were talking about?
1: Hmm. I yeah, it was. They were such strange one-liners, and I did that for for a while because because I thought that you had to write jokes. Properly, mm. you know, I'd, I'd seen comics like Stephen Wright, Dimitri Martin, Mitch Hedberg, and it was all, you know, a joke is a joke, and Seinfeld jokes are jokes. I really, you know, my theory is Seinfeld is one of the greatest poets of all time, and if you read all of his bits out as modern performance poetry or haiku, they all translate. Um, you know, it's um, it started out all as one-liners, and then they got longer and weirder and there was a really beautiful adolescent phase I think probably about five years into stand-up where I was neither here nor there and like obviously not marketable at all, not sustainable at all, but just this really gawky sort of phase where I was halfway between making the weirdest material known (laughs) to the industry and these very traditional utilitarian sort of one-liners and they were just it was such an awkward transition and then um probably around the time i started looking at those concept shows it it just got nice and weird for a little while and then we reined it back in <laughs> a few years after that
0: when you decided to sort of embrace the weirdness of it all, like, was it a conscious decision or it just was one of those things, as you said, the transition through that adolescent phase, like did the other stuff just become more of the act in the way that you said about the shows where you take the bit you're enjoying doing the most. And like, I mean, what was the process? Do you remember?
1: I think Look, the the happy end point has been finding ways to go. If I write, well crafted jokes in the weird stuff then mm. then we've got this sort of you can't deny it, it's not stand up but it's not stand up <laughs> somehow and people do get confused by it still so i'm i'm slipping between those tectonic uh-huh. plates of it you know i'm yep. <laughs> i'm in that ravine at the moment yeah. where people go wow what great stand up that's not stand up in the same breath <laughs> and i don't know how to escape this this cravat that I've called no, into. I prefer the um, way that I'm...
0: you said. You cannot deny the, this is the. You cannot, you no. you cannot Look, deny. I can
1: prove it. Can't deny it. Stand up. You want? I know you want to. You can't. I've got you. You're trying to.
0: I'm um, trying to come up with the right way to do it, but you can't. I got you. <laughs> um,
1: the 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 transition was in 2014. I did a show called Pillar of Strength. And the um the premise of that show was to narrate the story of an abusive relationship I had been in whilst uh very subtly through the hour raising the stakes on an abusive relationship I was creating with mm-hmm. the audience. Where I started off really lovely and charming and then I got gradually more and more out of line, you know, to to committing some genuine crimes against them towards the end of going, you know, fuck you, go see other communities If you don't like, you know, my comedy is better than anything you would ever get ever. Like I would be so obnoxious to them to the point where people, I, I wanted people on their, on their seats ready to walk out but not walking yes. out. And they'll go, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, um, oh, my God, I'm so, you know, it's been a rough festival. I have, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't, never mind. I'll make it up to you. And I would just play yes. with that line. Until I got to the end of my story, which was, you know, um, the end of that relationship for me, and saying, look, I I didn't make the choice to leave myself, but the reason I've been pushing you in this direction all night is because this is really important. I want you to get up and I want you to go. And so we ended the show with people being told, hey, you got to get up and, like, I have not, this is what it looks like. You can't do this. And that felt like just the concept of that intrigued me so much. It was such an ambitious show to write. And I think I pulled it off sixty to seventy percent. Well, like I got, I got it. And after that, I did um, Ghost Machine, which was my reaction to people telling me that I didn't look like a comedian. And it was really, that was a real tantrum of a show where I had been doing it for six or seven years, and I've been told that I was very good, and I had a lot of lovely reviews. I had, you know, again, legally, technically, on paper, you cannot (laughs) deny this is (laughs) stand-up. But people will say, you don't look very funny. You know, flying people outside town hall, you don't look like a comedian. You don't look very funny. You don't look like a comedian. This is, is it what? And I went, fuck this what if I am not in my work? What if I remove myself completely? And that was where I went into the duvet cover. And people were so much more receptive to the flyer and the show filled up Mm. earlier in the run than it ever did because this was not Laura Davis. This was Ghost Machine. Come and watch a comedian inside a duvet cover do the exact same material that they could do outside of the duvet cover if you just gave them the chance, but you won't So whatever. I, I just say I'm not martyring myself on the principle. I'm happy to, to go around. I'm happy if that is the obstacle, I'm going to find a way to go through it, not over. Not, we just, I'm just going to find a way to get you all in the room, and we're going to do it on your terms. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that meant something
0: to me. Yeah, I get that. That's Um, like, but it is a brave. And I say brave and I don't mean it in like a reality TV show, you know, you've been on a journey. That's very brave, you know, sort of way. But but (laughs) I mean, creatively that's a brave way to like, as you say, it it is a tantrum, but it's a creative tantrum. Like you've got to like that style points to me. That's, now, I mean, you talked before about tricking people in. That is kind of tricking people in. They're like, you know, if yeah. you, I'll just cover it up with a shirt. Yeah, it's a gimmick. Right? It's a gimmick.
1: Yeah. But it's, it's making sh- a point. Sugar for well. the medicine. Get, yeah. come, get it in you. You know, I did make the point. <laughs> I didn't I did let them go home without me having really made that point for them. I wasn't going to trust them to get it. <laughs> I wrote it on a piece of paper, you take it home on the back of the flyer. <laughs> miserable
0: um okay so you do ghost yeah, and then that happens and so mm-hmm. what's the reaction to to that like it feels to me like you know like was there a reaction to your approach there like you said that you were getting people into the show like
1: yeah look I ended up touring that for six years you know I wrote it in 2015 the last time I performed it was uh 2021.
0: Is that right? And we
1: did that until I think I've properly outgrown it as um, in terms of the material because it's an existential crisis. You know, it's very Sartre. It's very uh, <laughs> Camus. It's very, you know, uh, what makes life worth living. And that definitely feels like the existential crisis you have in your mid-20s rather than in your mid-30s. And so I feel like I've outgrown it in that respect. But people still ask for it, and there is no recording of it, just like most ghosts. There is no recording other than some foggy audio of it. So at some point I may bring it back to film it. Um, But the part, you know, that Adam's rib thing in that show, the bit I enjoyed most was when I was just talking to the audience and I was laying on my back on the floor in this duvet cover, And we were just sort of chatting, so the show I did after that was Marco Polo. I got a moose head for that show, and that was a one-hour blindfolded hour of crowd work dressed in speedos up the top of a ladder because, again, just tricking people into the room, just going, this is something, Mm -hmm. I promise. Look, it must be. We've got a haze machine. And (laughs) (laughs) it Worked again, you know, it was a great way to hone those crowd work skills. It was a great way to really celebrate that immediate connection you can get with stand up with people. And the fact that I was blindfolded made the crowd work more authentic in some ways, but also made people open up more because they're, oh, well, you can't see me, and they forget the rest of the people in the room can. And you got these lovely, you know, you got to really play with that space. And then after that, I started to go back into more structured stand-up shows to you know, prove that I could do those again. And then, yeah, recently it's sort of been these very dense hours where I make quite a lot of points, <laughs> <laughs> probably too many. Um, but the two shows that I've written in the woods alone, doing no gigs and having no way to test the material, both, if This Is It and um, Well, Don't Just End The Dancing were nominated in Melbourne for Best Show, but those were the two that I opened without having tested any of that material on stage ever.
0: So I Both hours
1: were completely untested.
0: Yeah, so I haven't done a, a gig gig like other than my touring show mm-hmm. since – the pandemic started so it's been three years now Mm. and in fact sometime in the next couple of weeks I am oh well when by the time people hear this it Ah. will have already happened I will have uh, uh, gone back and done (laughs) some stand-up comedy in a room that isn't just my own show (laughs) And Dear
1: listeners, if you are listening to this, I have already done my gig.
0: <laughs> My first one in three years, hopefully I can still do it.
1: I'm already dead. <laughs>
0: I might, honestly, there is a part of me that is just like, what if like this does not work in this environment anymore?
1: And, but Dear listener, by the time you hear this, my gig, my career will be, be over.
0: over. I, this might be the period. I might have learned that it's moved past <laughs> me and now I can only do my own thing to ever-diminishing crowds, you know, who are only there for nostalgia purposes until dwindle away. That's the beautiful cycle of nature, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful for nature you're the, the, the cycle, but it's yeah, not so good for the tree that's getting chopped down on the way through. <laughs> but I... Um, uh, the first show that I wrote back, you know, was the first show that I ever would have written um, without, you know, having anywhere to test it. I never would have done that before. And, yeah, again, it was an awarded show as well. Like, that show, you know, won the best show in Sydney and, like, won a director's award in Melbourne. And, you know, if you give me a fucking trophy for for um doing something one way, in my head that's a reward that says, you know, I mean, there was yeah. no way that I was going to test in the next year's show. Like, I got all this good psychological <laughs> rewarding. That, yeah, like, exactly. But I did think about it a bit, and I do think there is something to it, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, which is, at least from my perspective, I think that, you know, it's that famous like Steve Jobs, notoriously a bad guy for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of the things that he talked about that I responded to, which was he said it was not the customer's idea to know what they want, right? Like, you know, and mm-hmm. I do believe that's right. And I think that sometimes when you test material, you you hand the power over to the audience to decide what it is that you're talking about and they might not even be your audience. You're letting a group of strangers, like in an out-of-town screening, decide what get in between you, the artist, and your audience. Whereas if you don't put them in the middle, you're just trying to authentically connect with your audience without like, first running it by a third party. And I actually just think you're listening more. You're more attuned to... The audiences, anyway. That's just mm. what. What are your thoughts? Do you have any?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that is very interesting. And you know, the the big question of you know who is your audience and who gets because to some extent the people who don't like the show are also my audience. I want them to not like it and go home and go. I hated that. Ooh. And, you know, maybe at some point in their life, ask themselves the question, why? Why did I hate that? And then, you know, begin that journey of self-improvement and growth to
0: get to the point But the tricky, they realize. The tricky thing is money. It's um, Tr- tricky to monetize that for you, you know, <laughs> to pay your rent and stuff. Uh,
1: so, so hard, <laughs> you know. It really, you know. Really sitting there in the dark with the power turned yeah, off, just just, just, yeah, just winning, just, just right. righteously winning. Just wait, right
0: though. <laughs> just wait.
1: Just can't flick, flick, flickering flickering yeah. candle <laughs> as the gas is disconnected. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that I have a wider audience than I ever expected the demographic seems to be quite a broad net and people talk about demographic as in, you know, what what race are these people, what economic group, what sex, what gender, um, what political, you know, leaning do they have. And I think my audience seems to come together based on the ideas and people who are, are excited about engaging with things that are maybe a little bit more challenging. That seems to be my audience and so those people are hard to market to mm. in the first place as well um but i you know i'm i'm not going to uh, a late show in birmingham that is full of stag do's and going right all right we're going to give you a full oh, yeah.
0: you know intellectual
1: <laughs> experience here i'm i'm not that i'm i'm not you know the thing that I, I get frustrated and even angry about is when people say my material is not accessible, that I'm not a mainstream comedian. And I go, well, I work so, so hard to make sure it is accessible. And I am not from, you know, a hugely educated background. I am not, you know, I don't have money. I'm not walling myself up here in some sort of hypothetical art space where this is, you know, to be looked at and nodded at and then I'm I'm not doing that. Everything that I do in my hours I can probably do in a, a pretty rough club with you know stagders in. It's just the way that you deliver it. You know, I I get a little bit more space. I get to insert ideas in between the jokes in my hours and then in the clubs I just give them the the jokes. And to me that's that's the craft. That's a job. That's that's a trade. That's going in like a plumber and going. Oh, you've got a bunch of bored people in sombreros. Great. I'll um, I'll go up for ten minutes and I'll do a whole bunch of of jokes. But you know the the sex jokes that I have, the the wanking jokes, the vibrator jokes, the shitting jokes, the fart jokes. Those jokes I have are still on my angle. You know, I'm not giving them anything that I don't agree with. I'm not doing material that I would consider to be prejudiced or sexist, racist, because I know it will get a laugh. I'm still choosing the idea that is behind um, those things. Like the, the one I've just written that was in this show is about how uh, putting language into AI and AI into everything is, terrifying and amazing and incredible because once you have language you have rights and that's the way it always works once you have a voice in society you can negotiate, once you can negotiate you can get a better deal and the punchline for that is I won't even leave my vibrators in the same drawer in case they fucking unionize and that will get a laugh because it is a silly joke about vibrators and the joke before it is a silly joke about uh, the dog's that have been taught to speak with buttons on the internet. Both of those topics are very silly, very fun, very light. And then the idea slotted in between those two things is where I get my moment of leverage, where I say, by the way, this is why people fight to the bloody death to have a voice in society. This is why this is important. And then we go into the vibrator material. Yeah, but that's... (laughs) And so you're sort of hiding this. I mean,
0: of course. It's like, I mean, it's one of the best... Pieces of advice that I think, like, I mean, I don't think there are universalities when it comes to, co- yeah, comedy. Everybody, like, has different ways, and sometimes the complete opposite of what everybody else is doing is the right advice for somebody. But, like, I do think that the one that I'm reasonably confident to give people, younger comedians, is when they're saying they're playing different places and their comedy isn't working. Oh, you know, I'm not, my stuff doesn't work as well here. And I'm like, well just find a way to make your stuff work better there. Don't write don't ever write mm. stuff that you can only do there. Because that's you don't want to yeah. change you don't want to change you. Like in fact, it sometimes it's really exciting to work out that way to take your bigger ideas into, you know, places that weren't built for those bigger ideas. Like there's more fun in going, Oh yeah, mm. I can kill this gig, but you're also gonna like, you know, you're not a whole bunch of people <laughs> who are here for some learning, but you're going to get some thrown in. You're probably not even going to notice because yeah. you're going to be laughing at the jokes.
1: Yeah, and that is that is what lets me do, you know, club gigs and rough club gigs and club gigs that don't want to book me in the first place because they assume I'm not going to be able to do it. That attitude of, no, no, I will find a way to – because it's also – it's not effective – it doesn't serve me in any way, shape, or form to go up and give them ideas that they don't want in a way they don't want them like that doesn't help me <laughs> it's it helps me to give them the idea I really want them to have in a way that they yeah. will you know take it um I always I think sort of the the more blunt way that I put it to new comics sometimes I always and and it's meant to be a celebration. I would say your material is not funny. You are funny, and the way you see the world is funny and unique, and it is the angle that you come in that is funny. Your material is completely secondary. That's the, you know, that's just the machine you build to get that idea across, but it's your ideas that are funny. So the moment you sit down and think, oh, okay, so what's funny? That's when you're going to get your lowest common denominator. You're punching down material. That's where you're going to get those tropes and the ideas that you maybe don't want to engage with but yeah you could write a bit on that whereas if you sit down and you think what do I find unusual about the world what do what do I find interesting what do I find terrifying go pick an emotion pick something you care about and then talk about it and you will find the funny in it you'll find the joke in it, and you can apply you know the technical craft to make the joke really good, um, but your material is not where your voice is necessarily. It's it's one step before you create it in what you choose to to write about.
0: When you are collecting, like you know this idea that mm-hmm. you know you're just getting a sense about. You, you might not know when you when you're gonna use the phrase or you know what the idea is necessarily yet, but what is it that how do you know like if even if something is worth collecting like is that still i mean is that still a guessing game and you just like you know note down everything or do you have a specific sense of i mean I guess like you know i is it like Yes, I'm documenting all these things and then eventually I find a pattern through it or do you tend to find that there's a certain feeling you get when you recognize something that is, you know, to be mm. collected for later?
1: Yeah, I think it's – so for this hour, for instance, I would go for, for, for my walk, I would go for a walk an hour before sunset and an hour after sunset and then the hour in between. Um and from the moment I put my headphones in and step out of the house, I'm going, okay, let's just, you know, let's look for ideas. It feels like you're, you know <laughs> like part of it is the walking is scooping them up out of <laughs> the air or something mm-hmm. like that. You're sort of you're hunting for them and and if I I, I can follow a thought, I go, Oh, it's a bit interesting and I sort of I know the space I'm in mentally when I'm sort of a bit more playful with ideas is usually where they will come from. And then I write down anything that feels like it might be something or even might lead to me thinking about something else. So it's it's a very wide net to start with. And then all that gets written down. And then I, you know, usually on my phone as I'm walking, and then I transcribe what I wrote down on my phone into a document, or usually onto paper first. Mm-hmm. And then, as I write down on paper, I'm going, "Oh no, not you! Rubbish! No."
0: Okay, <laughs> oh, okay. interesting. Yeah. So even and then just they, there, then those you can ones notice. have to go into a
1: word document. <laughs> yeah. Then those ones, the ones that are on paper, have to go into yeah. a digital document. I have to type them out to be able to mm-hmm. edit them properly. And then you're going, "No, go, nah, that's not it. That's not it." But when I have ideas, you know, I get that adrenaline. From them, you know, I get that little kick of oh, that's one. You know, I get that that dopamine, that reward. You know, to the point of you know, the. I know if I've had a really, 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 really good idea because I feel a bit sick and I gag <laughs> a bit. <laughs> you know, I can I can get yeah. to go and go oh, bleh, like <laughs> the adrenaline spike of going, oh shit, that that oh great eureka moment. I will feel ill, uh, which is not glamorous at all, but that's how I know. If I've had a really good idea, I will feel a bit sick. If I've had a tiny – I recognize my own work when it comes to me. I recognize, you know, the difference between, oh, that's just a thought that I had and, oh, no, that's yeah. that belongs to – to this category. I don't know how you'd start to learn the difference, but yeah. I guess
0: you just notice. Uh so you, you know that this podcast has a loose premise, which is that I ask people, you know, if they have a life philosophy of any kind. Love, life, work, whatever, really. And you know, and an appropriate answer is also no. I I will accept no for an answer. It's just a conceit. It's a hook. So we have a reason to have this mm-hmm. conversation, really. But You know, I do like to know if people have some. We're all under it, (laughs) exactly. Some, but I do like to, you know, wonder if people do, you know, have a prism through which they, you know, view their life in any way, big, big or small. So, so do you? Um,
1: you know, if things go well, you have to live with yourself for a very long time. If if you're lucky, (laughs) you you get to, Mm -hmm. and so making those decisions that feel right even if they're not easy i i think i have some real existential masochism to to me i really i don't shy away from things that are painful that are difficult that are uncomfortable i think my margin for for tolerance there is quite quite wide and so it does feel like that Angles thing of, you know, if you make a decision that is slightly out of step with who you are and then you live with that decision for 20 years, you will end up quite far away from where you wanted to be. Um, there's a James one quote, and he puts it much more beautifully than I will, about, you know, how you have to live the way that you believe because if you don't, eventually you will believe the way you live. Mm. And I think that is a much nicer way of of putting that i I don't have any religion uh wasn't raised that way, and I still have the agnosticism of I just don't feel like we can know for sure, which leaves things fairly open. I definitely feel those little taps on the shoulder, those nudges where I go oh i think I think I know the work I need to do, I think I you know. I know the skills that I have, and how I can contribute them to the people around me who I care about. And there's a lot of satisfaction in the work of it. I'm a big fan of, you know, know, Albert Camus. um, All of that absurdism really appeals to me. But I also really appreciate his his dedication to service in it. Of that, the way you find meaning isn't to create your own meaning in that strict existential sense, but to to throw yourself into the, the work of it. You know, what you were saying about tinkering on the car in the shed, to, to really enjoy that part and to see what you have to give and give it feels like one of the most important things you can do.
0: It uh, can be all-consuming comedy um in particular and you know when you think about it in a deep sense it can be are you someone can you uh compartmentalize it like are you able to when you're you know with family or friends or whatever it might be you know or if you just wanted to go for you know, a three-hour walk and not think about ideas? You know, like, to, is there a way that you, I mean, is that something that you can do?
1: I think so. You know, I do, I think, accepting how much it's part of me in the last few years, when it was taken away, how much of it was still, again, how much it was still there and that that thing I said before about how the things you love and people you love and they change you and, you know, you, you keep those (laughs) changes. So even in the absence of all live work, I still had the writing. I, I can consciously make the choice. You know, sometimes they go, you know what, we're just going to go out. We're going to look at the sand and the shells and you are going to lower your blood pressure because it is probably too high. Like those, those ones, I find it tricky with, with people, I guess. And you know, the people I'm closest to are the people who see my job as something completely separate that I do. Or, you know, some of my favourite people don't care about it at all because you do want that separation. And I find it very tricky sometimes when people are like, oh, I'm talking to Laura Davis, the comedian, and oh, I can't believe, you know, I've got a few friends who I had to beg. Uh To be my friends, they didn't know that's what I was doing, but I was. Oh oh my God! Laura Davis, the comedian, has come for a coffee with me three times. I'm like, yes, Yes, try to to be a friend, friend. (laughs) please,
0: please, please Please stop stop. calling me Laura Davis, (laughs) the comedian.
1: I'm not. I'm not famous. I'm very accessible.
0: (laughs) I've been here three times, and you seem to think I'm a celebrity.
1: You're still you're still not looking, you know, when they when they see comedy as the car in the garage, when they see it as the thing that I love yes. working on, that feels like the most authentic way you can, you know, if you can't take me out of the car, <laughs> then, you know, you're still just looking at the car, I guess.
0: <laughs> when you yeah. uh like contemplate the world, you know, when you think about you know, mm-hmm. like what 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 do you think? What are your observations of, I mean, I know that's a big question, but, like, what's what's your immediate feel about, like, because I try to process all the time, how do I feel about the world? Am I, mm. like, optimistic about it or do I feel, I feel worried, honestly, I think, still. I think I'm pretty yeah. worried. And, you know, even yeah. just, like, this week, I – like I'm a person who's had like five COVID vaccinations. Like I've had all the ones that have been legally available oh, for mate. me to have, right? Rookie. And
1: I am grifting the loophole in New Zealand, so I've had I've had more than I've had more than I should.
0: I mean, let's
1: let's, let's put it on paper. You know what?
0: I'm fine with that, and I endorse it because I feel like <laughs> yeah. if you it's, want to, I love em. You should be able to because there was a statistic in the Australian paper. That says that eighty percent of Australians haven't taken their booster. Eighty percent, and and so I feel like if you and I want like an extra cheeky one, like <laughs> at six months, then that's oh, absolutely. Mate, I've had, had some months. cheekies.
1: <laughs> I've had the six months. I've had the free because yeah, I'm just I'm just I'm just grifting. I'm getting them in back alleys. I'm I'm Joe's. I'm for but the my po- <laughs> for the five. But times. I
0: worry that like we've given up. Like caring about the things that are most likely mm. to save us. So, like, you know, with the climate and with, you know, like just the absolute like diminishing of our trust in science, yeah. like the public sort of trust in science is like yeah. over these last, it just, I can't work out whether this is the way that people have felt, you know, for all of human existence or are we at just like, is, like, are we in the final series of this? Like, like, how are we? How yes. are we going? What's your take? Well,
1: look. Fortunately, this is something I have been engaging with every day for some time. And this hour, I've just been touring. At the at the very start, I say, don't don't think about the future. Just um, just feel about the future for me, and make the noise of the feeling of the future. And then the entire audience <laughs> in harmony goes. <laughs> And it's it's so nice to to get that read you know the most optimistic i've had is probably uh, uh, <laughs> it's not good and i get it um and it's to me my my mother is a science teacher she is a biologist and with no religion i really understand and i really respect the balance that the universe works with. And it's genuinely incredible of even in systems we have constructed as humans, the laws of ecology seem to still apply because we are of the natural order. Even things that theoretically don't exist. So I believe in an ecology of ideas. I believe in, you know, when you look at the spectrum of philosophy, for instance, Everybody's finding their little niche, as everybody does in nature, you know, in a forest, in an intertidal zone, for instance. Everything finds its place. Every resource is used. Nothing is wasted. Everything is recycled. And when we look at the world at the moment, I believe we are struggling with there is a, a philosophical element because what has happened In the same way as when we killed God, in your full Nietzsche sort of way, of, and when I say that, I just mean, obviously there is still religion; people still believe in God, but we stopped seeing it as an all-encompassing truth that dictated the laws of society Mm -hmm. and how every person behaved. Yeah, that became secondary. We have recently done that with. Um, money. People are seeing capitalism now as a external force. People are starting to see the absurdities within it. People are starting to say, this doesn't make sense. Why is the money going up this way? Why is it not going down here? It's not real. Money's not real. Oh no, someone's invented new money. And the comedy in that, the the existential <laughs> panic <laughs> of that is set in. But we have been taught for generations, and these things happen slowly, that this is how you measure a life. This is how you measure your worth. So when it was God, it was how do we measure meaning in our life? Where will we find meaning? And then we killed God. Everybody panicked. Sartre came up. You know, uh, Camus slotted in the, the middle of it. You know, <clears throat> Um you had your nihilism. So what we have at the moment is a ecological and economical nihilism where people do not know how to find value in their life. It's not meaning, it's value. How do you find value? How do you ascribe value to things? Because money, even if you are very pro-capitalist, very pro-money, even if you're very, very good with money, safe with money, have lots of it, you cannot – now, once you have that truth, you cannot ignore it and – once you've seen the absurdity, you can't shape that. So even the people with money who love money are still working with the little truth. They've still had that hairline fracture in the foundation. They still can't shape the idea that this is a bit silly. Whether they run in a direction of denial or, um, you know, find their own way th- through that, that's where we're stuck globally is We have destroyed a previously successful world order. And, you know, when I say successful, I do not mean it was working for everybody because obviously it's not. But we have destroyed it ideologically. We have destroyed it philosophically. And you can't come back from that. But we have yet to create the next phase. So we are moving towards you know the absurdist the um existentialist equivalence with the the death of capitalism i guess you know where people are influencing you know they're creating their own money they're making their own versions of it everybody's individual version of money is valid in the same way that you make your own meaning philosophically in the absence of religion. But that has not, that's not been sustainable previously. And so we're just, when we feel the world is ending, it is, (laughs) but that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. And that was the crux of my show this year was there is a future, even even if everything goes, and this is the audit, this is where we work out what do we take through that threshold. What It's not going to fit. Not everything is going to fit. We have huge populations. We have dwindling resources. But everything we need to build the future that we want, we have access to because everything, everything already exists in the way, you know, we had no concept of the Internet. We have no concept of what could come. But if we are not united ideologically in what we want that to look like, we will not be able to build it.
0: Mm. But how do we unite ideologically around that? Because that's the hardest bit of all. Because, of course, if you take a step back and just view the way that our society operates, there are so many – I mean, it's immediately apparent. If you were just trying to explain it to somebody that, like, there's this thing called money and it divides up, like, you know – how how you're able to live and, like, oh, by the way, 50 people have half of it, right? Like, it, it just makes no sense as a system, right? Like, and that problem's only mm-hmm. going to get worse. It's inbuilt into the system that that problem, that number will get smaller and smaller. Like, this is – there's a problem with the system in general, but, like, how do we have a conversation about – because we're human beings, but we're all obviously mm-hmm. very different. Like, I mean, you know, living in different places mm-hmm. under different – like, you know, do, like, incred- like even the idea of talking about us as humans, like, it is, I'm different from the people in my street, let alone, you know, the, yeah, mm-hmm. the circumstances of people all over the world. So that makes it difficult for a start. But we've got this, like, broken system mm-hmm. that's benefiting, like, none of us, apart from, mm-hmm. the, like, the what, like, I mean, it's such a small number mm-hmm. of people that it's benefiting. And I would them. say it's
1: not even benefiting them.
0: Well, I would say yes. they are
1: emotionally impoverished. I would say mm. they're ideologically impoverished. I would say they're socially impoverished. You can you know
0: I mean I'm fine with all that so too. Many but, ways. but also they're such a small amount that they're statistically irrelevant to this yeah. place. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> I think that that uniting, um I think Again, words have connotations, and uniting sort of implies everybody has to be on the exact same page. If you think of it as an ecosystem, if you Mm -hmm. think of the ecology of the ideology, if you think of the ecology of the ideas, you have an ecosystem where very, very different creatures live in complete harmony because there is balance. And so looking at those sort of overlapping commonalities – is a huge thing and where the right has had a massive swing lately because they have been able to unite people on one shared commonality. So, you know, the ecology of, you know, your far right, you know, uh, rally, the protests, the occupations, you have people who are very anti-vaccine and people who are are very – Uh, Mm pro-Nazi standing side by side. And those people do not share the same beliefs in terms of they don't have this full set of commonalities, but they share a similar root cause. You know, they believe in things like um, one of them is uh, that, the old world was better and the new world is bad mm-hmm. and we have to go back to get some common knowledge that existed a long time ago that we have forgotten. That is the core philosophical roots. And you're really, you're even getting into your evolutionary psychology there of the way that we are programmed to survive. It, our, our brains are so big, not, to hold a whole bunch of information, but to hold all the social skills and the compromises and the sharing of resources. So you have in our brains the evolutionary sort of mix of I need to keep everything for myself and I need to collect facts and data and information and the more I get of this, the better I'm going to survive. And you have the half of the – brain that is going, oh, well, if I share these things and we get along and everything, then we will survive. And humanity is a spectrum of people where some people are programmed one way, some people are programmed the other, some are uh, somewhere in the middle, and trying to find those those commonalities between people. You know, we, we look at the world through this imperial lens, but there is information, there are knowledge, there are people who are not <laughs> – being heard. There are people whose ideas aren't even on the table yet. You know, they're not they're not even in the mix because they've been suppressed, they've been sat on. When we get to start exploring those and restoring that balance, I really think we'll be able to get pieces of information that we did not have.
0: And what's your face that we will get to the point where we do like access those like I mean that's where I guess it gets before we tricky, burn right? ourselves up. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the time. Mm. Um look, I don't know. I do not think I do not think what we're doing is sustainable. I do not think the trajectory we are on is sustainable. I think it has been proven to not be sustainable and the denial that it is sustainable is something that will you know uh, inevitably cause the collapse. I don't, I don't think that's, it's not even a, you know, a misanthropy or anything or a nihilism, but in the balance of everything, what we, what is destroyed will be repurposed somewhere else. You can destroy the things that have been built and build new things with those materials, whether or not they be physical or more ephemeral than that. And so I believe in the cycles of nature and the order of the universe that seems to be in existence for longer than we ever have been around as a species that, you know, it's your Jurassic park life finds a way. It is your, um, Maybe everybody makes it through to 2060. Maybe we go through and we make the changes we need to make and things work out fine, but we need to work out what fine looks like. We don't have everybody's idea of what, oh, the future, that would be good, is so different. And I think it will take some serious shake-ups for that. To push people to start asking themselves those questions.
0: Uh, well, Laura, it's been so nice to have you on the podcast. There's still some more questions, but I'm I'm, I'm going to do a mm-hmm. plug. Like, let's plug something. Let's tell people where they can find okay. your comedy and, like, you know, uh, access your work and what's going on that you need to tell people about. So let's do that. <laughs>
1: um, well, I'm over in the UK at the moment, and I'll uh, I'll come back next year for Melbourne Comedy Festival um but in the meantime i've got digital albums you can buy on my website and i'm over at uh laura davis comic on instagram and twitter you can sign up for my mailing list i'm starting up my weekly y- newsletter and uh, yeah just sort of trying to grow grow the people who might be interested
0: uh well i, I encourage everybody to do that and uh i'm going to ask you some more like i mean these are, sometimes these are silly okay. questions but i like them um what is the best or worst or both piece of advice that you have ever been given
1: hmm. Good advice my friend John gave me early in my career he said it's going to take you a long time to get there but when once you get there you'll stay there and that felt very comforting um, I don't know if it's advice, but it's it's more of a, oh, a lens good. to look at progress through.
0: Yeah, I like that a Is, lot.
1: You know, easy come, easy go, basically. Mm. I don't know about bad advice. Maybe I don't. I don't even save the bad.
0: Yeah, <laughs> advice. I mean, I, I think that's um, quite common. And I'm I'm doing a like an amateur psychological <laughs> experiment during this podcast based on that I did not n- m- know that I was doing. But I think there's kind of two types of people, one who very much hang on to bad advice and can immediately call it to mind or people who literally, like if I'd left you there for 30 minutes, still would not be able to because you just, if it's no. bad, you don't you don't take it in. And no, because
1: you still have to love people.
0: <laughs> I've found a real clear delineation in the way that people answer that question. though. It's very interesting. Um, if you could wake up tomorrow and you did not need to learn how to do this thing, Uh, So, this is not, you know, comedy or the, I'm doing it because of the process. This is literally, you just wake up tomorrow and you have a talent or a skill or a capacity to do something. Um, What would you just like to be able to do? Oh,
1: ascend to a global power, Will. Like, <laughs> take, take, take over the world, start rewilding the Amazon.
0: Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just, how would you f- – like, I mean, but you know, like, sh- even with that thought experiment, right? Like, say that was the case. Say if, like, tomorrow you woke up and through whatever, mm-hmm. you know, particular circumstance, everyone's just decided, like, Laura, well, you're, you're in charge for a little bit. Like, how would you feel about?
1: I think about this every day, Will. <laughs> oh, every really? day, I, every day I run this scenario. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same as you know, Fiona Lachlan sitting in Alice Springs. There, there must be logical steps in between me and there. There must be. Other people have done it. <laughs> how? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think. I think I would live much as I. I am, which is you know that's nice to be able to say, but yeah, looking at the skills that you do have and trying to to give them and apply them um in the world, but i would I'd love to have musical talent i I think I have an appreciation for music, I really love music, and I have no capacity to understand it except for on a very you know, on a on a poetic level, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think if I didn't have to do the ten thousand hours learning how to make music, play music, uh, you know, have have a language for what I'm listening to, I would I would like that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So now you know the follow up, uh, I, and I like that, and I think that, of course. Um, uh, it's it's like a, I I'd like just some more specific. Like, is there a particular instrument, or is there a particular style of music that you would like to, particularly, you know, be able to play or understand or like connect with? Like, what is you know, like, give just paint the picture a little bit more specifically for me.
1: I think maybe maybe it's the language because mm. it's maybe not even that I want to be able to play something specifically. But I, I want to understand how it works in a way that I don't understand how it works. I see a lot of similarities in music and, say, my writing. You know, I might hear, you know, I I sit quite often with the question of like, well, what is the comedy equivalent of a key change? Like, what is a, like, what does that look like in a different form? Um, so maybe just that, maybe just the language. You know, I'd love to be able to play many many musical instruments cuz they're all pretty you know it's incredible to be able to play even one um but i think i think what i'm hoping for in this hypothetical is the the angle of my brain to be able to understand cuz i it just seems to be resistant where where i i have not been able to learn and i have not been able to teach myself or be taught <laughs> And so I, I think it's removing that is what I want um, more than even the outcome.
0: All right, um, two more questions and then we are done. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, the on no, my thank desk. Thank you for having me. I used to have a um a little thing that said, uh, "What were you? What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail?" Now, like for me, that was just to remind me that. I shouldn't think about like whether whether something would be successful or not when I was actually conceiving it. And I, I feel like, you know, I don't know what your thought process like around that is, like based on the work that you do. Maybe you like maybe that doesn't cross your mind in in the process or in, in how you think about things. But um I'll ask you that question because I like to ask people the question, which is, "What would you attempt to do if you knew if success was guaranteed, you could not fail?" And you've already said, um, "Be like, take over the world in a benevolent dictatorship." So yeah, you can't answer prob- that again. Probably
1: <laughs> no, but but it would probably be that that more gentle shift yeah. <laughs> towards um, towards politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like the leap from comedy into politics to me is a natural, logical, there, there's, you know, there's an overlap there in in intention, uh, but to a lot of people, they are very, very different things. So I, I feel like I would fail mm-hmm. <laughs> spectacularly trying to move across into a more serious, hey, actually, here's ideas, and we could act on these and, you know, do it in a lawful, constitutional way. I feel I would like to do that. And it is so fraught with somebody going, yeah, but you're that, that, that vibrated joke comedian who has not got a leg to stand on. So if I couldn't fail, probably, you know, moving gently that way, I think I would enjoy it in that way of i enjoy things
0: that are hard and, and rewarding <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely sounds like another thing that they you they
1: seem like, to be my favorites
0: yeah um uh last uh and uh, just for fun i have a time machine i don't for legal reasons but if i did here's what i would mm. do i would offer you one round trip to any point in the future or the mm-hmm. past you can go see yourself if you want to and Give yourself mm-hmm. some advice, but you can absolutely ignore your own self. Like you can just, you know, tootle off to somewhere that you'd quite enjoy having a look at or visiting. It is uh entirely hypothetical. Yeah. You do don't not have think, to stay there, and you do no, and you do not have to think about any of the ramifications of your actions. Like don't worry about timelines, or, <laughs> and, you do, and, and 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 you don't have to kill Baby Hitler or Hitler at any point in Hitler's life, unless... I
1: have no responsibilities.
0: Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's we'll send someone more qualified for that, yeah. right? Like, we've got the machine. Okay. We're not going to send I mean, you with the sole responsibility to kill Hitler. That's
1: No. I mean, yeah, look, this this time machine is definitely a bong <laughs> in this scenario. It's <laughs> um, definitely what we're working with. I would... Oh like I I think I'd like to go and like have a proper look at the world before
0: us. Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Like just for the perspective.
0: You mean I before think I'd, I'd like to us? hang out in the Cretaceous. Oh yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, like let's 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 chill in the Cretaceous for a little while. You know, I think you know the scale of that. Sometimes finds I find a lot of comfort in as much as it's terrifying. You know the way I find space terrifying in the way that some people seem to find it really comforting. And you get a lot of these sort of humanist funerals where they they say things like that that quote of get a physicist to speak at your funeral because you will realise that you're all atoms and tiny little particles and nothing matters. Okay. I find that horrific. Yeah, I think a, a little bit of like Jurassic Park, Cretaceous, you know. I think I'd like to see the, the Gondwana land, rainforests. I'd like to see swathes of Australia before they were yeah. colonized. And, I get that. Like, yeah, I mean, so I much think, is destroyed. I mean, Probably it, that. We,
0: yeah, because you talk about, I mean, i like I interested in what you said about the universe because, like, this is my whole thing that I can't get over is if mm. if like what I, if the prism through which I sort of make the, my generalized decisions about these sort of things, like when it comes to science I tend to trust the scientists like in the same way as I'm very snobby mm. about leave the comedy to the comedians and uh, you know, like let's just mm. you know, trust the experts and have some fun with that and so from what people say, you know, we're a tiny little speck in the corner of a never expanding universe and that I can absolutely see how that could be terrifying, and I also mm. actually relate to your idea that you're like, yeah, but I've lived on Earth, so maybe I just go back and check out Earth when there was no one living here. I'd like to see what it looked like. You know, I've already seen yeah. what it eventually becomes. Like, it would yeah. be good to see before before all this fuss. Like, what yeah. did it look like? What was going and then on? You
1: could tell the anti-vaxxers. Yeah it wasn't better
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can say no no no, no. no. I went right no. back to the beginning of the universe and there isn't any secret knowledge that we've no. forgotten sorry let's, Spoiler let's, let's sorry. move on
0: yeah, well, we're going to have to deal with what's in front of us uh, well Laura thank you so much for doing the show I really do appreciate it
1: no thanks for having me it's been so lovely
0: It's nah.